Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon and welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando. Today's show is dedicated to three women who are standing up for our children. Dorothy McAuliffe, Kimberly Davis, and Andrea Miller. Believe me, you are going to want to stay tuned for my conversation with these remarkable women, each of whom is the personification of the true meaning of giving back to our future. We begin with a most revealing discussion about one of the greatest and arguably most surprising challenges to children in our country, hunger. For that, may I introduce the First Lady of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Ms. Dorothy McAuliffe, talking with us today from Richmond, Virginia, to share with us her work with the No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign. Welcome, Ms. McAuliffe, and thank you for joining us today. And if you don't mind, please introduce us to who you invited to be with us today as well. Yes, hi. Uh, it, it's great to be here, Marcello. Thank you so much. And I also have with me here Eddie Oliver, who is with the No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign and who works in the governor's office with me here in e- Richmond. Excellent. Thank you, and welcome to you, too. Um, oh, thank you, Pat. Uh, my pleasure. Is it true that one in six kids in Virginia struggle with hunger, I mean, especially in the summer months? Is that a real statistic? Absolutely. That is absolutely the real number, and that is 300,000 Virginia children who are food insecure every year in Virginia. And it is shocking to me, as it was to my husband when he was elected and, and began his administration, and actually during his campaign as we looked into the numbers to see if we were to win, what would the tools we would have available to us learning that, that staggering number of children? As we know, and I know you agree, even one child going hungry in Virginia is not where we want to be as a commonwealth. Exactly. What constitutes a food insecure household? And how, do we have any idea how many children live in, in food insecure households? Well, it is that number, it's 300,000, and that mm. is uh, that means that you don't have 
a reliable access to food for a consistent period of time every single year. And so what we're trying to do with the No Kids Hungry campaign specifically is take advantage of existing federal feeding programs that are available to our children in need. The free and reduced lunch program, the, the national lunch program has been in place since the 1940s and Congress consistently has authorized spending to make sure we don't have hungry children in our schools because school is the best place to reach children. Yes. Um, it's where we can reach most of them, and it's their best uh, for for many many children. Um, for all children, actually, it's their best opportunity for success and to grow and to thrive. And so, we are trying to ensure that Virginia is and our local schools are doing the best they can to leverage those feeding federal feeding programs and those resources in their school districts with the breakfast program, the lunch program, the after school programs that are available for, for our students. Excellent. I was wondering, you know, we, we of course, hunger is the, the worst thing, but when we, we need to think beyond that, I guess, and I, I know you have, how does it impact on a child's productivity in school? And, and the question I've been wondering about, does childhood hunger have any long-term effects? In other words, when you're an adult, are you still paying for the hunger you, you felt and experienced as a child? Well, I think that we know that that's true. We've we've met many adults along the way, many who work in our schools, actually. Mm. Um, I met a, a school principal and an assistant principal at, a, at an elementary school in Loudoun County who talked about the impact hunger had on their lives, their learning, their, their you know, just their whole well-being. And we know that children can't be ready to learn. Uh, we, they see conduct problems. They see tardiness, absentees, trips to the nurse all kinds of challenges that interfere with their learning every school day mm. uh, for those children and families who are suffering from insecurity around food and, and the anxiety and stress that that brings. And of course, we know that there are many challenges that you know children living in poverty face, and this is just one answer, but we yes. think it's a, an important piece um, for their their ability to grow, their brain to develop, their ability for their, their minds and bodies to, to reach their, their full potential every day. Mm. We know that, you know, schools and principals make sure that on SOL day everyone gets breakfast, and we believe that that's important every day every of the year, day. so and mm. lead up to those test dates. And so that's why when we have only a 50% participation rate in our students who are eligible for free and reduced lunch, we know we we can do better. And so my office, and then partnering with the No Kids Hungry Campaign in Virginia, as well as business leaders, nonprofits in every region of the Commonwealth, we're all coming together to support schools to help them figure out how we can support them as they as they look for ways to change up their, their school service, their breakfast service models mm-hmm. to, to make sure more children are able to take advantage of those breakfasts um, at the start of the day. And as a simple act, of making that breakfast available after the school bell rings mm-hmm. really makes a big difference. Do you know, uh, uh, given the, the number of children who are eligible to receive free meals or at least reduced price meals, why does such a small percentage participate in school meal programs? Well, actually, the, the participation in school lunches is at a really a good number. Good. Uh, what we're working on specifically are the low numbers, the low percentage rates of participation in school breakfast. Summer meals and mm-hmm. uh, the summer meal. Well, I said school part breakfast participation is at just a little over fifty-one percent. Mm-hmm. In the summertime, 
that participation, finding a, a, a summer meal, it's about 13% of our kids who need one are mm. actually connecting with a summer meal. So we're working with libraries, nonprofits, as we said, in the communities, to boys and girls groups, yeah, church, faith-based groups that are helping to build access and availability for those summer meals, which is so important. If we can partner it with an academics during the summer, it's even better. Mm. that happens over the summer months that all parents know about. If sure. you're not keeping uh, engaged with uh, enriching activities, then, you know, we do see the academic slide happen in the fall when they come back and they have to, you know, kind of go back and begin again. So summer feeding and, and enrichment activities for those kids that live at the poverty line are, are really super critically important. Marcella, I think we have time for one more question. Sure. Well, then, we know that the General Assembly has uh, passed a, a half-million-dollar budget amendment to support uh, the Commonwealth School breakfast expansion. What motivates them? If, is it a, a improvement in the children's scoring, test scoring, and fewer disciplinary issues? What can we show politicians, uh, in particular, and other organizations that, that this food program is working and is necessary. I guess that's kind of ties in with the Out of School Nutrition Summit you recently held. That's right. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a great question. So actually, hunger and food insecurity is a very bipartisan issue. And so when we went to the General Assembly to advocate for this additional money last year, $537,000 uh, last year that was approved in the governor's budget Working in a bipartisan way with members of the General Assembly, we were able to connect students in 206 schools and 26 divisions mm -hmm. with, you know, helping them switch up their breakfast service model. So I talk about this breakfast after the bell. So where yes. breakfast becomes actually part of the school day. And yes, they, whether it is just the idea of children being hungry in their districts, mm -hmm. which uh, really speaks powerfully to all our members of the General Assembly, but also looking at the data, which shows that if children start the day with breakfast, 17 and a half point percentage points improvements in math on standardized test scores, mm -hmm. and it decreased absentees, decreased tardiness. Um, as I mentioned, the conduct behaviors yes. are improved. Teachers, you know, will have came to testify about how they immediately see the class settle down in a different sort of way in the mornings when they have breakfast time together. And, every, and the teacher knows that everyone is starting off with a full stomach and ready to concentrate and learn and do their best. So we really saw the General Assembly come together in a bipartisan way mm -hmm. um, to support this amendment. And because there is such a need, we had to turn away through that. So that allowed for a grant application for our schools to switch up their breakfast model a little bit so they could do it after the school day. Excellent. And even though it's a federal reimbursement, we're talking about the business model of how do you serve breakfast in the classroom do you, or getting buying those, purchasing those kiosks or grab-and-go breakfast. Those little those costs that make a big difference to schools but don't require a lot of money invested by the state sure that more students are able to participate because the food itself is fully reimbursed by the federal government, as I said earlier. Mm -hmm. But we did find such success and unfortunately had to turn away about 300 schools. And so this year, the governor is announcing today, in fact, his budget. It's a very exciting budget. Uh, first time in Virginia history that we have a $100 billion budget, complete wow. budget. And uh, within that budget, he has 
uh, provided $8 million, um, so it increased by about a half of uh, $500,000 mm-hmm. um, this year to help improve access to school breakfast, to help schools absorb those costs that are involved in, in switching from before school to after the school day starts for the breakfast model, to really make it part of the educational day. And we know mm-hmm. that it's a really important part of the day. It's important, I do believe, as a mother of five, as books and laptops and all the other uh, parts of um, supporting education that we believe good nutrition, um, access to quality meals um, is as important part of the day to the learning that goes on. How can those listening help uh, the No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign? Website, what do we do? Well, there is a website, and it is nokidhungry.org, Virginia. And, of course, that website, nokidhungry.org, Virginia, has a lot of facts, statistics, um, information about uh, what's happening in Virginia around school participation in, in meals. And, of course, donations and resources are always welcome and needed because it is like a, a ground campaign to... Uh, be able to market where our summer meals are, to provide non-state-funded grants as well to schools who are have a high need that don't have the budget in many ways to make sure that, you know, the costs associated with some of the feeding programs are, are put into place. And then, of course, just talking to, in your local school, you yes. know, parents talking to their their teachers, their administrators about how is how effective, how many kids are participating, what is the need, and even in even in schools with incredible resources, there will be in Fairfax County there are a twenty six percent you know free and reduced lunch rate, and that's about forty five over forty five thousand children in Fairfax County alone. Wow. So um, you know that's it's a lot of children, and, lot. and as we said at the beginning, every single one is very important to all of us into our future. So please do, I hope your listeners will, go to the website, learn more about No Kids Hungry and the No Kids Hungry campaign, and it is part of a national organization, Share Our Strength, which has been involved with school feeding and hunger for about 30 years. So it's a a great organization and one I'm very pleased to partner with here in Virginia. Marvelous. I wish you and, and the No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign all the very best, and I thank you so very much, First Lady of Virginia, Ms. Dorothy McAuliffe, for being on the show today. Thank you, Marcello. Have a wonderful holiday. You and, too. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye now. We've been talking with the First Lady of Virginia, Ms. Dorothy McAuliffe, and we are certainly thankful that she was on the show and making us more aware of what our children need to live a happy, healthy, and productive life. Please support No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign. Thank you. Stay with us because our next guest is the founder and CEO of Virginia's Untapped Voices of Tomorrow. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Cassidy McMillan. I'm the director and writer of the documentary film, Bullies and Friends. Because I never would have wanted, never would have wanted any of them to be scared. 
child of 14 would take her own life because of bullying. Bullies and Friends tells the true story of a 14-year-old girl named Dawn Marie, who after being bullied and threatened with death by three girls at her school, hung herself in her bedroom with her dog's leash. In her suicide note, Dawn Marie named her three tormentors. The incident sparked a groundbreaking investigation that led to the precedent-setting court case, where for the first time in North America, teens were made to stand trial for bullying. When my sister Brenda and I first saw the documentary Bullies and Friends, we knew we wanted to get involved however we could. Bullying has become a worldwide epidemic. Thousands of children from across the globe have committed suicide due to bullying. As a nurse, I've seen bullicide have horrific effects on the family and friends. According to the Centers for Disease Control, bullying among school-aged children is a major public health problem. Over the past 10 years, the occurrence of bullying-related suicides across the globe has shown the connection between bullying and suicides. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among children. Tragically, almost every other week from across the globe, another child commits suicide due to bullying. These are only several of the children who have taken their lives due to being bullied. Seth Walsh, Stephen Yuri, Carlos Vigil, Rebecca Ann Sedwick, Phoebe Prince, Carl Joseph Walker Hoover, Kelly Yeomans, Bart Pelos, Jasmine McLean. One child is too many. We need to take action now. You can get involved by joining this film's cause of bullying and bullyside prevention. I first heard about Don Marie's story on The Oprah Winfrey Show. I was horrified to learn that a 14-year-old girl would feel so terrified that she felt her only escape was to take her own life. I reached out to Don Marie's mom, Cindy. Cindy and I both felt that telling Don Marie's story would help prevent another boy or girl from taking their life due to bullying. Bullies and Friends not only recounts this powerful story, but it offers solutions to bullying, to schools, parents, kids, and communities. In the film, we have interviews with the nation's top bullying experts, and an exclusive interview with the judge who presided over and handed down the precedent-setting ruling, as well as interviews with teens involved in the case, including the main teen girl brought to trial for bullying. In making Bullies and Friends, I've traveled to schools and youth organizations across North America, where I've worked with thousands of kids, hundreds of teachers, parents, educators, counselors, and other community leaders in my research on bullying and bully sides. We were really struck by how this film actually presents solutions to bullying. The film is emotional and deeply affecting. I'm hoping that Cassidy's work can save lives. Brenda and I set up a special film screening of Bullies and Friends that was just for parents, teachers, and kids so that they could all talk about the film afterwards. Bullies and Friends open the dialogue on bullying and bullying prevention. The kids and their parents at our film festival screening really wanted to show it at their school. We can really relate to how much Cassidy has sacrificed as a filmmaker to make this project happen. This film can help so many kids and it's already making a huge difference. At some of the screenings at schools, 
students have come up to us afterward and said that prior to seeing the film, they were this close to committing suicide due to bullying they were experiencing, but said that after they saw this film, they knew that someone cared, they saw the devastation their death would cause, and now said that they would seek help instead. And that, to us, has made the long journey in making this film more than worth it. We've had people say to us that they want to help prevent bully side, but they don't know what to do. Helping this film raise money and get out into the world is how you can help. The film has been met with tremendous positive response from schools, organizations, and events throughout North America where we've screened early versions of the film. We went ahead and held preview screenings due to audience demand from schools. This film has achieved distribution with the global distribution company. The company is patiently standing by, waiting for the film, but we must meet all the funding requirements. Know that you will be involved with a film with an important cause already slated for worldwide release. This campaign's funding is needed for all the pre-distribution requirements to get this film released across the globe. Costs include multi-platforms of distribution, closed captioning, sound mixing, and the many other production costs. Only a small percentage of independent films get selected by a distributor for worldwide release. We're very proud that Bullies and Friends was able to achieve this amazing accomplishment. This is an all-or-nothing campaign. If we don't raise the total funds needed, this bullying prevention film cannot be released to the schools, parents, kids, and communities across the globe. This film is a grassroots movement that is helping kids and communities. Any amount you contribute is huge to us. Every dollar helps in this campaign to help us prevent bullying and bully sides. We're asking you to go donate today. We have great perks, including being among the first to receive the DVD when the film is released. Be listed in the film's credit special thanks section, which means you will be listed on the film's IMDb page, and the exclusive opportunity to be listed as an associate producer or co-executive producer of this important film. We're also including a needed stretch campaign to fund the film's bullying prevention outreach tour. We need you to share this campaign and its cause with your family, amongst your friends, and anyone you know who's been affected by bullying email, through social networks. If you have any friends in the press and media, please let them know about Bullies and Friends and how helping this film get made can help kids all around the world. We thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My second guest today is Kimberly Davis. And Kimberly Davis is the CEO and founder of Untapped Voices. Good afternoon, Kimberly. How are you? I'm good. And yourself? I am good, too. And I'm very pleased to have you join us in the second half of the segment. And I know you've written a, a new book, Mama's Pearl, and how that sort of um, plays into or is a product of, I guess it's a two-way street between Untapped Voices and Mama's Pearl, um, they give to each other and create each other and, and grow and learn from each other. But tell us what you're doing for and for whom you're doing it and how Mama's Pearl and, and your daughter and poetry and all that fits. Okay. Um, I started out um, Untapped Voices because I wanted to give back to um, the inner city kids. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we take in um, 
meet on Friday for one hour with inner city kids that have stories that they just need an outlet. They need a way to get them told. Sometimes it's through poetry, through dance, or through writing books. And so what we do is we meet, and I bring in outside people. One of the people that I bring is my daughter. She does a lot of open mic shows, and she competes a lot with her poetry. So Mm -hmm. she comes in, and she works with some of the poets, the young poets, Uh I'll say. Uh, they're, they're in the future, so we'll say the young boys. Okay. And then she helps them tune in their skills by, you know, examples. She'll take them. Sometimes we can take them, get permission from the parents to take them over to uh, some of the open mics, and they can just watch her perform or watch her compete. And so that has really been really good for us. And mm-hmm. then when we have the ones that's not the poets, but the ones that like to write, you know, yes. they have stories, and so we work with them. And what we do is we help them to get their book put in writing, and we get it copyrighted, and then we show them how to get it edited and get it, you know, book form. We, we walk them through this process so they can see the end result. Gotcha. When you're talking about, oh, well, we can write this book, and kids, that's not enough to hold their attention. Uh-huh. You, you have to deal hands with them, you know, like, sure. okay, let's just sit down and let's do an outline of what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And then once we get that outline done, we start doing it. And so once they start seeing it materialize, you know, it, it's just a real happy feeling for the kids. And most of all, the happy feeling for me because I'm able to help them. So you are, and, and again, uh, if I can read into this, untapped voices. You are untapping the voices that are often not heard. You are releasing them, right. giving them a voice. Exactly. And you do exactly. this. You do this through um, poetry and other writing and dance and comedy. We do a lot. And right. and it isn't just inner city youth, but you help ex offenders and juveniles as well. Yes. I work with ex-offenders and I work with you and all. A lot of the ex-offenders have stories that they, you know, want to get told. So we write books and then some of them, we just help coaching them and showing them how to present themselves on interviews to get jobs. Uh-huh. I do believe in second chances. And sometimes we run into people that don't believe in that because they've not had success with it because they have not been taught how to present themselves. And uh, in particular, in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, this is slightly off, but not really. Uh, do you ever get involved in helping uh, uh, ex-offenders who committed nonviolent felonies? Uh, there is a process, although it is uh, filled with uh, hurdles, but there is a process to help them to get their voting privileges back. Is that, right. and that, that certainly is a way to get one's voice heard. Is that uh, ever a possibility for untapped voices or for your... You're, it is. Uh-huh. Uh-uh. It is, and that's the one thing that I hear, you know, I, I, one of the girls that I was working with, she just actually got her right back to vote. Oh, wow. Uh, she, that was a process that she was doing before she met up with me. Uh-huh. And so now me and her are working together to show others how to do it. Fantastic. And it is a process. Yes. You have to go through, you know, the parole board in Richmond, Virginia, or, you know, the Commonwealth in whatever part of Virginia you're in. Mm-hmm. But it can be done. Excellent. Tell us about your new book, Mama's Pearl. I have a new book out. It's called Mama's Pearl, and actually it's going to drop on Wednesday. And that book was based on, um, it's about a a, a teenager that 
looked real good in school. She just got caught up with the wrong guy, ended up getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. The guy denied he was the father, and so she went on. She completed school, got a master's degree, got a job, you know, secure a child. Mm-hmm. And one day she met this guy that she thought was the perfect guy, and he turned out to be the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. And so that book was wrote because I want to show that everything that looked good is not always good. Gotcha. You, you, and so and that's not what it was based on. Exactly. You can't judge a book by its cover, so to speak, forgive the pun. But you do have to look beyond, not only as individuals, but our whole society and nation, I think, needs to look beyond the superficial. We get a lot of, uh, we get a lot of on, you know, the surface reporting and media, whatever, and we don't really get in in depth with uh, problem solving for all Americans. And I think Untapped Voices makes a good model for trying to reach those who are not who are not only not reached or reached out to even but are right. are, are forgotten more often than not so right. what That's what inspired you to uh, launch untapped voices um i got in trouble and i was one of those that Ten years in the military, had a great career ahead of me, and mm-hmm. I got out, couldn't find a job, hooked up with the wrong person, got introduced to drugs, and I ended up going to jail. And then I had met a 15-year-old while I was out in my addiction, and I tried to save her, and I didn't understand that I couldn't save her because I couldn't save me. Mm-hmm. And once I was incarcerated, they told me that she had OD'd, and so I decided at that, t- that point right there, that I was going to do something different with my life. I was going to try to reach out to the young adults and juveniles and everybody that I could, mm-hmm. you know, just sharing my own story of stress because a lot of the kids look up to me because they used to see me all the time in my uniform and stuff. But I'm like, do not be fooled because you saw me in a uniform because I took the wrong turn too. It was just so happy that I got back on track. And that's the one thing that I want them to understand. You, everybody's going to make a mistake somewhere down the line in mm-hmm. life, but don't let that one mistake stop you from being who you want to be. And so, and that's what I teach them. Excellent. So you, uh, you sort of had the bookends are, uh, uh, you in United States Army for 10 years, is it, as a uh, telecommunications operator, and you are a former felon. So, yeah. and between those two uh, extremes, if you will, you your experience is now being applied to help others not make your mistakes. Uh, right. And Untapped Voices certainly is a tremendous program for that for for young people and ex-offenders and juveniles. Tell me, um, tell us how can we help? How do we donate? Is it possible to donate to Untapped Voices and if or give us a website donate. and whatever? Yes. If you go to www.untapvoices.org, you, it will give you all the information you need to make donations. We do take donations, and the donations are uh, to help um, the, the cost of getting the materials to write these books or to get the places where they can practice the praise dance and or showcase their talent. So that's pretty much what um, the donations are used for. So far, I've been doing this for five years, and I've just been taking the money out of my pocket. I got and you. And doing it. From my book sales, I was just invested back into that. And another book you wrote was an earlier book, A Brother's Secret, but now uh, Mama's Pearl is about to come out, and you say that um, you have actually used the proceeds from your former books to pay for the program of Untapped Voices? Yes, sir. Wow. 
That's that's certainly going the extra mile. That's for sure. Well, any parting words we have to go, but tell us what what do you want to leave us with, uh, Kim Davis? What what should we know about you and Untapped Voices that you want us to take away from this conversation? The children are our future, and it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. And so I'm going to do my part to do what I can, and I just advise everybody that can to help. Okay. So that's untappedvoices.org? And we've been talking with Kimberly Davis, who is the founder and CEO of Untapped Voices. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for being on the show. We appreciate all that you do, and we wish you all the very Thank best. You. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. My pleasure. Bye now. Bye-bye. Stay with us. We'll be right back with our third and final guest today in this tribute to a trio of remarkable women. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. We were intrigued when we started hearing reports of an entirely original film that had those in the know talking. It had been seen at the 2014 issue of the Sundance Film Fest and was being described as the first Iranian vampire western. Hmm, interesting. A girl walks home alone at night. Turns out to be exactly the kind of film we love to feature here at the Indie Film Minute. Beautifully shot in luminous black and white by an emerging Iranian-American filmmaker. Its brilliant imagery hangs in our memory alongside the greatest of art. When the final credits roll, two thoughts dance through our heads. First, what a perfect ending. And second, we want more. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is a love story between a striving young man and a female vampire. It is set in a world of decadence and disaffected youth with stratification of wealth and cruelty between the exploiters and exploited. A once flourishing mankind has brought itself into decline and devastation. Yet strength remains in the heart of the hopeful. And here, one of those hopeful souls just happens to be a vampire. Dark, but brilliantly effervescent. A girl walks home alone at night. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show with my final Virginia guest today, my political mentor, Andrea Miller. Hello, Andrea. How are you today? Good afternoon, Marticello. So delighted to join you on this afternoon. I'm I'm so happy to have you, too, because so much is always happening. But for those who may not remember uh, Andrea from earlier shows, let me tell you a bit about her. She is the executive director and IT director of PeopleDemandingAction.org. You want to visit that, by the way, and get involved. She was the Democratic nominee in 2008 for the House of Representatives in Virginia's 4th District. She ran on Medicare for All and Clean Energy Platform. Andrea was endorsed by the Progressive Democrats of America, California Nurses, and the Sierra Club. And I could go on and on, but we only have her for one segment today. So the reason I asked Andrea to join us today We're all very excited all over social media and America that there's been a climate change Paris Accord. And I would love, uh, you know, as a person with a half full glass, I I want to be optimistic about this. But first of all, it's not a treaty. 
it's not agreed uh, upon yet. It's uh, but at least we got a lot of the uh, the leaders of the world in one room to to acknowledge intellectually at least that there is such a thing as climate change, global warming, and whether or not mankind caused it is not the issue. The point is it's it's having its effect on our children. And mankind has to do something about it. Exactly. So, Andrea, I'd like to know what you think of this new climate change uh, international, if you will, accord. But also, if you can in your answer, if there is a bridge in your opinion, can you tell us what the bridge is, the connecting bridge between an international climate change accord and the infamous, if you will, trade deal, TPP. Oh, okie dokie, wow, that's a big order. Yes. Um, first things first, um, the agreement in Paris, there are 196 countries involved, and it is a combination of, of course, the countries that we know as the superpowers, as well as developing nations. And what was good about this particular agreement is many of our developing nations are what I would call water or island nations, mm. meaning half to maybe more than half of their land mass is surrounded by either an ocean or a sea. So as the global ice caps or the Arctic ice caps melt and sea levels rise, these nations are exceedingly vulnerable to sea rise. Mm. And they could be facing near, if not total, extinction. Mm. So their requirement was very, very, very aggressive. And that is that we must not allow the temperature of the Earth to go beyond or above 1.5 Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit from basically where we are. Because in the event that we get warmer than that, there's a disaster for these nations. Well... And were these um, were these smaller nations represented in the Paris Accord? I mean, were were yes. delegates there? Yes, uh, they were. Yes, yes, they were. So not only were our smaller island nations, the Marshall Islands, and many others represented, and the African nations were there. Yes, the indigenous nations, because some of these island nations are basically still indigenous people. And so the Indigenous Environmental Network, which is um, mainly U.S.-based, they were also an insurance. So you had really an historic gathering of people in insurance. It wasn't just our typical, only the superpowered children. And that's what I thought you said, but I wanted to, to clarify. I thought it was quite 
an international, I think perhaps uh, as a first step, the greatest thing about it is that so many different nations and peoples and cultures were represented. But I just wanted to clarify. I thought that's what you had said. Now, 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 on on the downside, when we talk about who was represented, big uh-huh. oil also had their big feet in the conference as well. Uh-huh. So it's not as though our big climate polluters weren't there. They were there. So everybody was there. The big, the small, the good, the bad. That and the ugly. Yes. So oil yeah, companies... Yeah, exactly. So the oil companies were, of course, there to... Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth or theirs, but it would seem to me they've known... Certainly we know Exxon knew. They've known for some time that um, they were negatively impacting on the planet, on our air. They, on... They, they've known since the 70s. They've known yes. for decades. This is not news to them. You know, there was an old movie. It wasn't particularly made well, but uh, its message was important, and its stars were phenomenal. That's George C. Scott and Marlon Brando, no less. And it's called The Formula. And this was made back in, oh, I would say the early 80s. But I've seen it, and it was about this very point, that the oil and and, uh, corporatism, long before that word was coined, were destroying the environment, and they knew it, and and yet they were making deals and until, I think the, the movie implies, until they were able to acquire newer, greener forms of energy. Well, one of the things that is happening, unfortunately, is um, big oil and the big energy companies are doing exactly that. Uh-huh. So that it becomes all about power and control. Yes. So they want to control the green energy sources so that it is at a time of their choosing that we make the transition as opposed to a time of our choosing from Dominion Power purchase the wind leases um, off the Virginia coast. Uh-huh. And they are now the predominant owner of all those windlasses. It's like Nestle trying so to privatize. It's not a, a quote, green energy organization. Uh-huh. It is Dominion Power. So that means that we don't really see the development of substantial forms of wind energy until Dominion decides that. And you know, again, I urge everyone see this old movie. If you you know, I know it's a movie. It's not even a great movie, but it's a it's it tells a story uh, of exactly what's happening now. And it told this story, as I said, either late seventies or early eighties. And it's what Andrea and I are talking about. Except she gives us that that extra always that extra bit of information, uh, as does Brando in the film that. They want this on their terms. You know, it's not a generous offer. It's to be at their convenience. And, of course, it's good, I feel, always to have people, everybody around the table. But when such power is around the table, do we hear the voices of people like the Marshall Islands? The Marshall Islands are already sinking, are they not? That is true. And 
And now we don't hear the voices of the people. We hear the voices of corporations seeking to increase their bottom line. How can they get more money by doing less? While we're talking about old movies, let me throw one in. Mm -hmm. That was probably one of the most entertaining and one of the best anti-nuclear movies ever made. Uh And that was The China Syndrome with Jack Lemmon and Jane Fonda. And Jane Fonda, yes. And and you know, uh, we're not here to just talk about old movies, but sometimes Hollywood's message is is well let's put it this way we're more apt as americans to sit and watch a movie and be uh moved by it or impressed by it than we are to be able to discern between the gossip we're given on corporate owned media but i don't want to get too too far off but that's an excellent point there there that, I think um, we've reached a point where we need to now respond to that edutainment. You know, the, the, the Congress, we don't know. Uh, Mitch McConnell, surprisingly, at least to me, has uh, decided to hold up uh, TPP. And the president, I, my hat off to him, he, he has had from the very beginning tremendous amount on his plate. And while I've not always agreed with him, uh, I think he has done reasonably well, all things considered. But what has he wrought in Paris with this um, with this potential let's say a, a climate change agreement what what are we realistically pragmatically coming away with is it possible are we just is it just a smoke screen what is it it's going to be very very interesting um, there is nothing in the TPP itself about climate change that specifically made it a point to not say anything at all about it. However, this is how it plays out. In the end, if we were to say, a 
attorney, a corporate defending attorney. So in this particular instance, the corporations cannot lose because they are basically the judge and both attorneys. So the bridge is the corporations, the the energy uh, industry of whether it's um, sitting down at the table saying, let's talk about climate change, or sitting in a court of law and saying you can't do that because of TPP. Right, because it interferes with our profit. Yes. And when we look at that, then we have to look at, do the oil and gas corporate giants feel or care about people in or developing nations. Mm. Do they technically give a rat gas whether those people or those lands exist? There's no fossil fuels on them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume these are not huge mega fires, so why would they be concerned? Obviously, they're concerned for it is the right thing and the humane and human thing to do, doesn't really seem to be a big driving force behind it, what they do. It, it the does. other thing that we saw in the parrot is women and the indigenous people, when we look at climate justice, while they were able to drive the goal of where we want to be, mm-hmm. there is still the issue of we are and fracking basically does a number of really poor things. We've all seen gas land, and we know that fracking destroys the water in the immediate area, and we aren't really sure how far outside the area. We have also learned that fracking can cause earthquakes mm. because we are going in and literally drilling through the Earth's crust. And with fracking wells, there are a lot of wells, almost more than there are oil wells. Mm. The other thing that we also tend to really miss in fracking is where a number of these frackers are. So when we look at states like North Dakota, where you have a very large indigenous population and you have trackers all over the area, mm. well, there's a real negative impact on women. It's very, very limited jobs. And um, as I was reading on an NPR interview, mm-hmm. the fracking wells in North Dakota did create 11,000 jobs. Mm. However, 10,000 people moved in from out of state. Yeah. So that meant that local people only got about 1,000 jobs. Now, imagine 11,000 men, basically, living in a relatively small area where these fracking wells are. Mm-hmm. The women, since there isn't a work for them, are now being subject to rape. Mm. They are involving themselves in prostitution in order to survive. It has created a 
major, major local problem. Mm. So women are being exploited. Women are being killed. This is, you know... And this is what this environment brings with me. How do we... I mean, it's almost like the Wild West. You know, I was going to say that, and also, again, I guess I'm, we seem to be slipping into movies today. I don't remember the title of the movie, but the kinds of things. It was about what happened to women who uh, had to work in Mexico and how and and uh, being caught out and actually m- murdered in in the uh, rural areas, and nobody ever hearing from them again. I we just seemed in. We we seem to have, and I, and I I try to have a positive show, but I, reality is reality. We seem to have a corporate-driven, uh, top-to-bottom society now that really is, uh, you know, one way I can explain it, and this has just been my conjecture, when people say, why would anybody want the uh, the Arctic to melt? And I used to always say, well, because it's easier to drill through water than ice. Um uh, is that sort of the the mentality here to make it? I think you even said to make it easier to make more money doing less. Is is that what's driving? Uh, that's... Um, and you know that that's a very interesting thought. I had never really considered that before, but that that, that there could be a lot to that because we do know that under Arctic ice there is. Oil. Yes. And yeah, if the ice were not there, that would make life um, in terms of going after these fossil fuels that much simpler, even though the whole notion of continuing to utilize fossil fuels at the rate that we are mm-hmm. is consistently and continually contributing to the warming of the planet, yes. which is contributing to all of our destruction, including the people who own these oil and gas companies. Exactly. One would think they would be smart enough to want to save their own lives, but apparently their greed knows no better. You know, I hear what you're saying, and I often say, you know, I, I think they plan on privatizing, as they have already to some extent, space travel, and they're going to figure out how to live on Mars. But they're just, you know, it's just astounding to me what's behind it. Uh, if you gather all of this wealth and these mansions and bonuses, if you can't breathe the air, you can't come out, you live in a bubble. You know, and waters, uh, we know about Nestle trying to privatize water and food deserts already in the inner cities in particular, which, you know, we don't have time, but we're going to take the time, Andrew, if you have a couple more moments, I'd just like you to explain to people as briefly as you can, but but take your time. Climate justice, you've mentioned that earlier, and the injustice of climate change falls on where uh, plants are, are built and how they affect local economies. Now, I know you, you spoke of that for... North Dakota, but give us some other examples of how climate change brings with it climate injustice. Well, one of the things that we have to look at is when we decide we're going to locate things like landfills, where we're going to build a new coal-fired 
plan mm. where we're going to put a nuclear plant. There are certain places where we know they're not even going to consider putting it those particular items. Yes. We know that they are never going to consider building a landfill in a wealthy area. Mm. And immediately people would say, well, the land is too expensive, the land is too valuable. So what they're going to do is they're going to look for land where you have a very disempowered population. Mm. Probably they're going to be communities of color and they're going to put the landfill or they're going to put the um, coal-fired plant in those neighborhoods. Mm. And again, landfill, coal-fired plant, um, many of these new plants that are incinerators, you find most of them going into communities of color. Mm -hmm. And out of those plants, you find all types of toxins going into the air, and you start to find an incredible percentage of children and the overall population suffering from asthma and other diseases that are related to serving dirty air, because we breathe. 24 hours a day, seven days a day. All right, we're going to have to go, but let's end this with a call to action, Andrea. I mentioned at the top of the show, peopledemandingaction.org. Tell us about that. How can we, uh, what do we do when we go online and find it? Is there a way to to be, uh, how do we become more involved? We're going to have to end it with that. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have 
heard the call to action. It is serious. It is now. Climate change is now. Global warming is now. Uh, our children are already being affected, especially in uh, some areas more than others, but it's not, uh, it's not exclusive. <laughs> Climate change and global warming affects everyone. So my thanks to Andrea Miller, uh, uh, who is the executive director of PeopleDemandingAction.org, for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you very much for having me, Architect Mark Take care. Thank you. Bye now. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Remembering when time was of no consequence. I'm 30 years old today, and I wonder if my wish will come true now that she's gone. When I was three, my mother told me my father's heart had stopped working, and we couldn't go back to our home to live for a while. When I was six, my mother met a man I liked a lot. I even offered to pay her five dollars if she would marry him. No matter how tired he was on a Saturday morning, he would get up early and color with me. He was always telling me smart things about people and living. But this story isn't really about the only man who was ever a dad to me. It's about his grandmama and me. You see, when I was seven or eight, I asked if he was God's best friend, and was that why he was so smart and always seemed to know just what to say, since he had never had any children of his own. Smiling, he joked that I had given him a rush-up crash course in parenting, but finally he admitted he had a secret well of wisdom that he would take me to on my tenth birthday. Nothing I could do would ever make him give me a ninth birthday hint or make my tenth birthday arrive a year or two earlier. But finally, I dashed headlong, squealing into the day before Halloween 1985. I was finally in the double digits, ten at long last, and off we went on a mysterious subway ride that in many ways I am still on, traveling around the world, still searching to see if it was more than than just a story for my journal or the memory of an ancient woman under a tree in the Bronx. Her house was simple, but an extremely large flowing breeze of paintings, mirrors, sculptures, Brahms and Mahler, windows and bellowing shears and squirrels, white ones, everywhere. When we arrived at the back veranda, all of Riverdale lay before us like a painting Monet had hidden away for special admirers, and there in the midst of it sat the well of wisdom. He told me she was ninety. At ten, I couldn't possibly imagine anyone over fifty years old. Even my grandparents were in their sixties, and it seemed to me they could hardly see or hear. As we got closer and closer to the chair under the tree, I put my hand in his. I admit I was a little afraid of Norman's mom from Cycle suddenly turning in her basement chair to greet us, but she didn't. Maybe she's deaf, I thought, making my heart pound even more. Then suddenly the wind sang through the branches above us, and the sound of a voice from the chair filled in the harmony. Without the slightest glance in our direction, she whispered, What a lovely great-granddaughter you will be when you're thirty. 
He stopped walking and allowed my hand to slip from his, as if the last few steps were a test of courage I had to manage on my own. I was nonetheless drawn to her, unaware of anything but the wind in her long gray hair and in the tree limbs above us. Just before I stepped around in front of her, she whispered, "'My, my, but you are tall for ten. Seeing her face come into view ever so slowly with each tiny step I made, more hesitantly now, I was overcome. Although she was the oldest human being I had ever seen in my life, her smile, dancing eyes, flowing hair, and then gentle touch made me feel instantly, this is what I want to be like when I grow up. I mean, after I get old, really old. Every move of her hands or glance of her eyes was as much poetry as a spring sunset and as refreshing as the first sounds of fall. I finally managed to stop staring and squeeze out, Hello, my name is... She joined in as we whispered my name in gentle chorus. Instantly I knew this would be unlike any other birthday. I looked away for a moment, not certain what to say next, but all I saw was white squirrels dancing about. He had disappeared into the house, I suppose. She brought me back with, So here we are, two birthday girls. It was her ninetieth, and my tenth, and still I had no idea how connected we would be for the rest of my life. Shall we dance to celebrate our new year of life together, she teased. My silent reaction seemed to delight her, for after she laughed ever so softly, she proclaimed, Oh yes, I can still dance whenever I want. Then gently tapping her right temple, she added, Right here. There were many beautiful stories on every birthday visit for the next nine years, and then she was one hundred, and I twenty. It was the last birthday we spent together, and the memories of it propel me still, always forward, searching for her secret place, and always inward, to all the love and humanity with which she knitted my heart and mind and soul together, as forever united with her own. Happy one hundredth, I beamed, arriving at her chair under the tree. It will be now, she said, smiling warmer than ever. Then announcing that today is a most special birthday for you, my dear. So special because now I can give you a gift I have been saving for you since October 30th, 1975. Even at twenty, I couldn't help but tingle in anticipation, as was all too obvious to the lady who had become, in more ways than I was capable of imagining then, my great-grandmama. My dear, she beckoned, come closer than ever before. You must listen with more than your ears, she instructed. Then she launched into what would become the motivation of all my summer travels and explorations of discovery of who I am. It was the birthday of my life, she began, in a time before our world was a house divided against itself, before blue and red states, before fear replaced wisdom in our reasoning, before the poetry of communion and the harmony of communication were replaced by notes of discord, before war became a right of might. There was a time so long ago that it was before time was even noticed, 
and in this time there was freedom and love and peace between all people near and far. It was the time of human nature. In this time before time was of any consequence, there was a precious miracle high in the secret hills surrounded by the flowing green of nature's greatest forest. It was the great forest country of the chosen ones. Sadly, like many such civilizations in time, the miracle was taken for granted and little by little allowed to slip away in the chilling wind of winter. So tarnished it became that Mother Nature herself decided it was time to do what you might call a makeover. And soon the great forest and its chosen ones were no more. After twice as many years as I am old today, a young prince, the seventh in his family, set out in the great unknown beyond his father's kingdom to find his own path in the world and perhaps create his own kingdom. Like the great princes of the Old Testament, he was followed by many loyal to him who wished to marry their hopes and dreams to his own. Many of the finest craftsmen and artists had elected to follow the seventh prince on his journey of discovery but none so important to him as the beautiful woodcarver's daughter. For over a year they searched for what only the prince knew, until one day they realized they were in the midst of a great dead forest, where birds no longer sang and deer no longer grazed with their fawns, where nothing of color or life could be seen. Even the great bears who walk the earth never ventured there. Shocking all who were with him except the lovely woodcarver's daughter, the seventh prince issues his first proclamation. Here in this place of death we will bring new life and hope. Here we will build a new country of laws, equality, and freedom. Let us begin with a giant circle of trees to unite and protect us, but always leaving room for new life to grow. Now, a year later, high on a hill at sunset, the Prince Ingvar pledged his love forever to the woodcarver's daughter and asked for her hand in marriage. She agreed to be the prince's bride. From such a vantage point and after a long, intense gaze into the deep brown eyes of his bride-to-be, the prince was struck with another great idea, something that would be his second important venture of this day. He told his darling in the warm sunset of a proclamation he would make on the morrow. Soon after the sunrise the next morning, people began to gather to work, only to see the young prince waiting for them at the unfinished gate. As the giant circle of trees nears its completion, I, your prince, proclaim, our new country should be a republic, where all creatures on earth, human or otherwise, be treated with respect and extended equal privileges in their time here on earth. This, he explained, meant that all the animals, bird, fish, trees, mountains, lakes, everything of earth and on earth would be granted the same status as human life. It will be called the Republic of Reason, and the first ceremony to dedicate the great gate to our new republic will be my marriage to the beautiful woodcarver's daughter, Elise. 
all in the town cheered the wonderful wedding news and began to decide just who would be best to sit and deliberate the future of their infant republic. Soon it was decided that the seventh prince should be elected the first king of the Republic of Reason. So it was written, and so it was done by majority vote. All but one. As a wedding present, the woodcarver personally placed the grand finishing touch to the great gate of the Republic, an elaborately ornamented Ark of Freedom, filled with the lifelike carvings from all of nature. It was now ready for the new king's dedication and marriage to his daughter. And so with the beginning of so many dreams and memories of love, joy, freedom, and harmony with each other and all of nature, as the natural cycle of birth and departure continued, it finally came to pass that the needs of the citizens outgrew the grand 100-year-old wooden gate to the Republic, or so the new government said, especially the head of tourism and real estate development, the descendant by the way, of the only vote against the original king. So with only six months before the hundredth anniversary of the great gate of the Republic of Reason, the new young king was approached by a committee of the whole, strongly insisting on the demolition of the great gate and the hundred-year-old ark under which his great-great-grandparents were married. A new larger gate of steel, iron, and brick is needed to attract wealthier tourists and their large carriages and the equipment needed to develop the natural resources of our great forest. It is time to ally ourselves with the powers across the great water to the west, and such a new massive gate will need to be armed with devices and guards to record all who enter or leave and when, for our own protection, warned the tourism director before an assembly of the king and the committee of the whole. The new king is very young, but wisdom reigns in his genes. He requests a 48-hour period of national contemplation to entertain how such a change in their history can accommodate their future while respecting their past. All save the chairman of tourism and real estate development agree that this is a reasonable approach to such an undertaking. So it is thus decreed throughout the land, all all citizens of the Republic of Reason are asked to send the young king their very highest and best thoughts and feelings for his response to the government. Ascending the very hill where his great-great-grandfather proposed marriage to his great-great-grandmother, and where first the idea of a republic was born in the mind of his ancestor King Ingvar, he wished just a little that the idea of a republic had never been born. Still knowing that life is change, and without change life becomes death, he kneels facing the setting sun and searching both the heavens and his heart, knowing before the next sunset he must find the answer to all answers. It is for this that he was born to be king. third day, the 
young king descends the special hilltop of his ancestors and is greeted by thousands of citizens of reason who anxiously await his answer to the government proposal, or wonder if he can convince the committee of the whole of any alternative plan. Finally, when all are silent, the young king speaks with the clarity and wisdom of his forefathers. Our ancient great gate will not be demolished, for its significance to our history as a people can never be replaced. It shall stand always as a reminder of the strength and faith of those who saw life where there was only death, and who long before us provided a place on this planet just for us. When the director of tourism and real estate development stepped forward to protest, the young king with a raised hand continued, We will seal the great gate for all time and preserve it as it has served us for 100 years. And simultaneously, we will build an even larger modern gate on the opposite side of our encircled republic. This new gate on our northern border will welcome in our ever-increasing growth, development, and future citizens with great celebration. The people so hailed the great wisdom of the young king that no one could hear the agitated discussion that the director of tourism and real estate development was having with the committee of the whole. By the time the crowd of proud citizens began to settle, young King Torben was continuing with tremendous oratory describing how the new gate would be heralded into the fabric of their great civilization. On the anniversary date of our republic, he began, we will celebrate both the old and new gates with pageantry of dancers and parades of all our citizens, both human and animal, all accompanied by concerts of nature's best singers and the finest instrumentalists from across the great water. On this day every year, our new gate will open to all who wish to become citizens of the Republic of Reason. It will be declared a day of welcome and sharing with the world, and all all who enter will be joined by us in a procession of world peace and prosperity. From our regions in the East will come the great scholars and educators of our university to poetically pen a recording of this new expansion of our harmonious open society. And from our Western regions will come the great artists and craftsmen who will, in stone and on canvas, emulate the happiness and joy proclaimed by each anniversary celebration. From our new North Gate, all new arrivals will be greeted by citizens of reason who will escort them through seven days of parades and celebration to the great old southern gate, where all our spiritual leaders will gather to bless each and every one of us with the very highest and best oneness, with all of nature, and with only good things and happy times. And in honor of our past, on this same day every year, all who wish to marry or renew their vows will be invited to do so under the Ark of Freedom of our old Southern Gate. As the entire Republic was already preparing for the upcoming 100-year anniversary of the Old Gate, the young king's plans could be brought to life with perfect timing, just in time for the traditional anniversary. But the king had one more surprise announcement. And now, I give you the crowning jewel of the expansion and ever greater observance of our beginnings, a new 
royal wedding. For more than a year now, I have loved in secret one who walks among us in serene beauty. I now propose that in six months, on the anniversary of its first wedding, we seal the grand old southern gate with a new anointment of blissful love that recalls its coronation as the gateway of our land of freedom and harmony. If she will but join me in sharing the secret of our love for one another, I will ask the daughter of our esteemed Director of Tourism and Real Estate Development to join me in holy wedlock on the very spot that our nation's founders sealed our future with a loving kiss. Elise, will you marry your king and be queen of our republic? Well, before the flushed, shy Elise could even respond, her eyes revealed the truth of her love. However, as she began to take a timid step toward the young king, her father, the director of tourism and real estate development, lunged forward to block her way. Then reeling toward the king, he opened his mouth to roar his objections. But just then, Mother Nature once again intervened in the great forest country of the Chosen Ones. Suddenly, white squirrels appeared. There must have been a hundred of them. Children terrified their parents by running to pet them. Parents grabbing their children who screamed in disappointment retreated in shock over the sight of so many squirrels of any color in one place. All the white squirrels seemed to be coming from around above and even under the old southern gate behind the startled king. Immediately the committee of the holes scurried away and even the director of tourism and real estate development was speechless. For now the white squirrels were surrounding the director and separating him from his daughter. While Elise was being gently herded by the little darlings to the side of the king a number of the bushy-tailed arrivals were running up and down the director's body forcing him to back away and finally fall to the ground Many citizens began to observe as they allowed their children to slip away from their protection for a closer peek at the awesome sight that once in the arms of her king, the white squirrels proceeded to encircle the two young lovers in a way that resembled the great trees that encircled and protected the Republic of Reason. The king asked that the director be helped to his feet, and with the sound of his voice, the squirrels left the director and joined their comrades on and around the great old gate and in the circle around the soon-to-be new royal couple. Only the director and the king seemed to notice that the carved squirrels in the great old gate were missing. With this, the king turned to the director to ask for his daughter's hand, and under the circumstances, the director wisely agreed. The crowd cheered louder than ever, and the children danced about imitating the squirrels. And so the six-month engagement and construction of the new northern gate began. Ah, such a heavy sigh interrupted my great-grandmama's birthday story. What is it, I asked? No answer. Please don't stop now. What happened to the new royal couple? Slowly she reopened her eyes and looked deeply into mine, and with a sense of mission began anew. Six months later, as the new clock tower struck nine in the morning, September 25th, 1903, the 100th anniversary of the first royal wedding at the Old Southern Gate, 
the new northern gate was opened for the first time, and what greeted the welcoming citizens of reason was a spectacle they could not have possibly imagined. The throng of the multitude of people and animals waiting to enter was staggering, just in sheer numbers, but when the king signaled the trumpeteers atop the gigantic new shiny steel doors, and they answered his royal gesture with ear-rattling blasts from their trumpets, the Republic of Reason received a friendly invasion of a world of naturalists, travelers, adventurers, real estate developers, hunters, dignitaries, oil men, and, of course, curious tourists. They came on horseback, camelback, in huge carriages, several on elephants from India, and then great automobiles with bearded drivers. The huge wave of arrivals were directed and escorted by selected citizens of reason on the epic parade along Concert Way toward the old southern gate ten miles away, with circus entertainers leading the tumultuous gathering. With all the performances, events, sights, and wonders along the way, it was a parade that was expected to last until dusk, just in time for the young king and his bride to be wed in the glow of pre-sunset, and to have their union celebrated with hundreds of fireworks that would light up the sky for hours thereafter. It would be a glorious bridge uniting the old with the new, and with the new queen would come an heir born out of tradition to lead the Republic into a new, unknown world. But I'm getting ahead of myself, great-grandmama confessed, for just as the king had decided he would proceed ahead of the throng to review final wedding preparations with his attendants, the trumpeters split the air again with a musical fanfare fit for a king, and rightly so. For as the king turned to see what had caused such a musical proclamation without his ordering it, in rolled King Edward VII of England, in an enormous carriage bedecked with more jewels than the entire royal treasury of reason could boast, pulled by eight magnificent horses of obvious superior breeding. The king of reason was, of course, honored and pleased, but most surprised. Yet this moment passed quickly, as shortly behind the king of England, the young king thought he recognized a man on horseback. The familiar-looking presence became ever more so, with each step of his anxious steed straining against his mighty hold on its rein. He had the look of a man in command, and he was followed both by a larger-than-life automobile and an iron machine of some kind with what looked like a cannon sticking out of it. Behind that, at least a hundred men in uniform marching in perfect columns. As the horsemen rode further within reason, those closest to the king asked, "'Who is he, sire?' The king, although young in years, spent much of his time reading about the outside world, especially of the great powers across the great water, which he now knew was called the Atlantic Ocean. Seeing the monocle convinced him, and he whispered to his attendants, It is the American president, Theodore Roosevelt, a man who loves and respects nature and the wild as much as we revere it. He is most welcome in our republic. All began to cheer as the American leader dismounted to pay his respect to the king, and then gestured an offer to the king to ride with him in his splendid automobile. 
with one condition the young but wise king responded yes your majesty what else may i offer asked the president that your rolling box with the cannon remain outside the walls of my kingdom with a loud boisterous laugh and through a grin a mile wide president roosevelt shouted bully and so it was ordered what a day this had become, the young king thought as he rode with the great leader from across the ocean, and how wonderful it would be to have his wedding be the seal of so great a marriage of past and future. Later, after the vows were mutually promised, the loving kiss completed, and the fireworks streaking across the heavens, the king spoke to his people and all their guests of peace, freedom, and love for all here present, both seen and unseen, happily ending with, Now on to the great wedding feast. As the royal carriage transported the new queen and her king and husband to the royal feast, she asked, What do you know of this American president, my king? King. I know his love for trees, mountains, lakes, and free open territory equals our own. But please go on, my husband, the new queen encouraged. But he loves killing wild animals, the king whispered softly. After a moment of confusion and shock at the inconsistency, the new queen pronounced, Then you have much to teach him. The pride in her smile bolstered young King Torben as much as the memory of the line of kings and queens before him, all married at the great southern gate of his kingdom. The next seven days of celebration went by all too quickly, as time was now of some consequence, and little by little all of the heads of state, dignitaries, and most of the visitors had departed, all except the oil men and real estate developers, who had been in huddled meetings with the director of tourism and real estate development, and, of course, the committee of the whole, for most of the seven days of celebration within reason time, they said, was of the essence. Although King Torben and Queen Elise knew it was inevitable that her father and the Committee of the Whole would insist on more and more changes in the Republic of Reason, for now they were lost in their love for each other and their desire to continue the line of royalty with an heir. It proved to be quite a challenge with two bitter disappointments, but finally on October 30th, 1905, an heir was born to the King and Queen of the Republic of Reason. But it was a girl, beautiful and loved truly, but a girl nonetheless. Never in a hundred years had there not been a king of the Republic. The queen was worried about the future of her child, but King Torben reminded her that this was the great period of change for the Republic, a time of rediscovering and redefining itself to an ever wider and expanding world beyond its great circle of trees. So, as both proud father and wise leader, King Torben announced that his daughter would be named after the most courageous woman he knew, his wife, and recognized for now as a rightful heir to his throne. The people of reason loved their king and his traditions, and with their cheers and prayers, they were delighted to love their new princes as they did her mother, Queen Elise II. None, however, were as delighted as the director of tourism and real estate development.
The great lady in the chair under the tree stopped her story now and bade me go home and write down all I could remember of it, for the writing and rereading of it will keep me alive and will lead you to your own discoveries. With that she gave me a sealed envelope, adding that you will know the right time to open it, but not today. And then our last birthday visit was over. I was torn between wanting to stay and racing home to write down all I could remember in my journal, a journal I had started just for her and me on my tenth birthday. However, as I could see she was tired, I kissed her gently on the cheek and made my way back to the large house that still held such fascination for me. It wasn't until I got to the veranda that I realized something and quickly turned to see that I had just walked through a yard filled with white squirrels dancing all about the great lady in the chair under the tree. Epilogue Now, ten years later, somewhere high in the hills of Bavaria, I think I still continue recording my search in my journal, starting more than a quarter of a century ago. It's not that I expect to find a Shangri-La, but having opened the sealed envelope on my 30th birthday, I am positive that the Republic of Reason existed, and that I was blessed with the opportunity to share the last years of its last princess, who undoubtedly has returned to the place where time is of no consequence. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.